This is Archive Atlanta, episode 89, Dr. Roderick Badger. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So before getting started today, I just want to let you guys know that I'm working on a bunch of new interview episodes Cannot wait to share them with you in the future. Um, But one of them is going to be covering all of the historic preservation questions that people have from the simplest, like what makes something historic versus just being old, to the complicated discussions about whether historic preservation helps or harms some communities more than others. So this announcement is to ask you, the listener, to share any questions you may want answered. Uh, My contact information is always in the show notes, and I have been compiling everyone's questions um, in a list so that we can cover them all. It's been a minute since we've covered a historical figure from Atlanta's past, and so today we're going to go way back to share the story of Dr. Roderick Badger. I've posted his headstone before on social media, I think it was last year, but my knowledge of his history was really limited to the sound bites that I had heard on a tour um, or read from a website, and it was born enslaved, first African-American dentist, buried at Oakland, the end. When I dug into the newspapers, the books, and the academic papers, I found a much more complex story about his race, uh, a few sensational stories about his life, his family, uh, and that opened the door to learning more about free Black people living in Atlanta before the Civil War. So this week, we're going to talk about Dr. Badger, who he was, what he did, and what legacy did he leave. Let's start with a short history about slavery in Atlanta. I can only speak for myself, but I feel like this is a common experience for Atlanta residents. You tell an out-of-state friend, relative, or stranger that you live in Atlanta, and they immediately get visions of Gone with the Wind. And this makes me think of my mom and her siblings um, who grew up in Spain watching dubbed episodes of Bonanza. And to this day, my mom loves Westerns. And for her, and kids like her across the world, when a country is so far away, whatever TV told you it was like was what you believed. And the same thing happens for the South. People with little knowledge of Atlanta or even Georgia's history think that our city must have been a scene out of a Margaret Mitchell book, complete with cotton fields, slave labor, and white-columned houses. But the reality is that Atlanta couldn't have been further from this vision. The city did not have a sizable population of enslaved people due in part to two things. First, the climate of the Piedmont region of the state, which is what we are in, was not good for growing cotton. And then second, its pre-railroad geographic location made it really hard to ship products across the U.S. So, you know, there wasn't the port of Savannah. You're just in the middle of the state. And even if you grew something here, you couldn't get it to be sold. The city also did not have many free people of color in the same way that Charleston or New Orleans did. According to records, the 1830 DeKalb County Census lists a total of 10,000 people in the future Atlanta, with just over 8,000 defined as white and just over 1,500 as enslaved. There was only 18 free people of color. By the time 1850 rolled around, the city of Atlanta lists 2,572 residents, 493 of them are living in bondage. And just two years prior, the city council had began regulating the movement of slaves. So listing where they were allowed to go unsupervised, how they could be hired out. Again, when you're living in a non-plantation area, um, people that were enslaved were generally laboring in people's houses and at times were sent out uh, to work in other places so that their owners made money off of them. 
Shortly thereafter, city council adds a tax to the sale of slaves within the city limits. The bulk of enslaved people in early Atlanta were in domestic labor, and the other half were in hotels. The early Atlanta hotel operators owned at least 20 enslaved people, and they used that to run their businesses. A decade later, the city's population is almost at 8,000. Um, almost 2,000 of those people were enslaved, and only 25 were free. These free people did not seem to gain any kind of special status um, based on their status as being free or how dark or light their skin was. And again, this is different from the, you know, the stories of New Orleans and the stories of Charleston. Almost all were uneducated and or illiterate, and they hired themselves out for day labor. People like Roderick Badger were rare. They were wealthy, they were educated, and they were of a much higher class. His story begins with a man named Josiah, sometimes listed as Joshua Botswick Badger, who was a white, property-owning dentist that lived with his wife and children on a tract of land in the Panthersville district of DeKalb County. Today, that area is over near Glenwood Avenue and then the site of the former stockade, which they're in the middle of redoing. Their home was brick, three stories with a winding staircase to the upper floors, and the property was covered with rose gardens, a grotto, and a few summer cottages. The Badger family also owned enslaved people, and Dr. Josiah had sons with at least two women that he owned. Robert H. was born in 1821 to Josiah and Martha, an enslaved cook. In 1834, Roderick was born to Josiah and his enslaved mother, who was named Jemima. Both were born before Georgia's 1852 miscegenation law, so there were no legal repercussions for Dr. Badger and his extramarital children. Not that I think there would have been any way um, for a white slave owner to do this and nobody was going to arrest them. The accepted history is that Dr. Badger treated his sons well, um, taught them both the dentistry trade, and then freed them from servitude. Roderick occupied a position of status that free people in Atlanta did not have. And again, that was afforded to him by his education, um, his family's wealth, and his very light complexion. Roderick's name was not listed neither as a slave nor as a free person in the 1850 and 1860 censuses. And we know that he was free. So it's kind of strange, like he's just not listed. And then in later years, he was even sometimes listed as white. Um, so I was reading a book that talked about this where we can only make assumptions, but he may have used that ability to pass later in life in order to make his life easier. Both Robert and Roderick maintained this class social status by marrying light-skinned, prominent women. Robert's wife, Caroline, was a quadroon, which is an archaic term for somebody who is a quarter black. Um, and together they had six children and they lived on Clifford Street. Most of his kids attended Atlanta University. They became teachers across the country. One of his daughters, Carrie, uh, led the opening of the Krogman Elementary School in Pittsburgh. Um, she's a namesake of Pittman Park. Roderick married Mary Murphy, who was a daughter of Charles Murphy, a white lawyer and Georgia senator from a very prominent Decatur family. So when Murphy died in 1861, um, his only quote-unquote legitimate child, a daughter named Eliza, inherited his estate. Part of that estate was Mary Murphy because her mother was enslaved. So technically, Mary's half-sister became like a stepmother. And this thing's really complicated. And I couldn't even understand it. But when Eliza later married Milton Candler, who was the brother of Coca-Cola's Asa Candler, he became Mary's new father-in-law. And Mary used that status symbol in her life to say, you know, my father is a Candler. 
Mary and Roderick would have eight children, seven of them which lived to adulthood, um, and their names were Zora, Roderick, Ralph, Joshua, twins Walter and Jane, James and Charles. In 1856, Roderick came to Atlanta to work as a dentist, having to work on Sundays just to save up and purchase his instruments, but he did become one of the best in town. White Atlantans flocked to his office, and white dentists were less than thrilled, to put it mildly. In 1859, a petition is filed stating, quote, We feel aggrieved as Southern citizens that your honorable body tolerates a Negro dentist in our midst, and in justice to ourselves and the community, it ought to be abated. End quote. They demanded that an ordinance be passed that would require all free persons of color coming into Atlanta city limits to live. They would have to, within 10 days, they would have to pay the clerk of the city council $200. So almost like register and pay a fee just to live here. Now, if they don't do that, they are subject to arrest. They will be jailed for five days and then they will be hired out to a white person for labor. Basically become enslaved. This same ordinance imposed a $5 tax on all free people that were already living in the city, and it prevented free black people from relocating into Atlanta unless they had both a white guardian and express permission from the city council. The city council actually received four requests for four free black people to move to the city, and shocker, they denied all of them. So again, this is not hard to understand why this city had a very small population of free black people. In the subsequent years, ordinances would regulate um, what free black people could wear, no capes, no canes, no firearms, or even what they could do, which was no walking around after dark and no operating a horse carriage. In 1861, the white dentist petitioned the council again about Dr. Badger, quote, parading as a dentist, end quote. That same year, the Civil War began, and Roderick served as an aide-de-camp, um, which is kind of like a confidential personal assistant uh, in the military, to Milton Candler, his kind of sort of father-in-law, and he would continue to practice dentistry throughout the war. When Sherman captured Atlanta, he ordered evacuation of the city, and Roderick and his family moved to Chicago, where they would live for two years, from 1864 to 1866. Upon his return south, he lived in Nashville with his brother and was reported to have practiced dentistry there with Robert and his white half-brother Ralph. After the war, he and Robert donated their time to teach school at the First African Church in Atlanta. Educating newly freed African Americans was an immediate overwhelming task. Um, so again, they were educated black men, which was very rare, and so they helped teach kids. Here's a good time to talk more about Robert, um, or Bob as he was sometimes called. The research was confusing because it's written that he was also taught the dentistry trade. Um, he practiced along with his brother Roderick, but it appears that later in life he had some issues with mental illness, and we'll get to those stories later. Roderick opened his dental office on Peachtree Street over Banks Shoe Store. He was also involved in local politics, um, petitioning in one article I read for a committee to memorialize the outrages that are committed upon the colored people. And this was in 1869, so just four years after the war. The following year, he owned property on Collins Street, Wheat Street, Daniel Street, Harris Street, and Langford. And by mid-decade, he was serving as secretary of the National Freedmen Savings and Trust Company, the Atlanta branch, 
1879, he was elected to the Clark College Board of Trustees. Um, He served on the Building Finance Committee. And by 1884, he was considered one of the richest black men in the city of Atlanta, with a portfolio valued at over $15,000. Really, the entirety of the 1870s and 1880s, Badger is in the top three of the wealthiest black men in the area, and the majority of his assets were held in real estate. Roderick's drama starts around the same year. So when his son, Duke, tried to commit suicide. Apparently, he had led a wayward life, but was recently settled down and opened up a store on Wheat Street and Boulevard. Just two years later, his other two sons, Ralph and Joshua, had a little incident uh, over on Decatur Street. There's a guy named Moses Calhoun, who actually I'd like to do a mini episode about. Um, He was a prominent member of Atlanta's Black community. He owned a restaurant, and he had several daughters. One was named Cora who Ralph made some passing comments about, which I assume was what we would call a catcall today. Well, Cora tells her mom, and her mom finds Ralph Badger and demands a public written apology printed in the newspaper. I know this all seems really silly in 2020, but the Victorians were super strict about women's roles and virtues in how society worked, and a woman's reputation, especially surrounding the opposite sex, was extremely important to maintain. And Ralph refuses to apologize. So Cora's mom basically knocks the crap out of him. (laughs) And then it's described as thrashing. I don't know what exactly that entailed, but it sounds really bad. Um, So she thrashes him publicly on the street. And then later she goes to buy a cowhide for the next time that she would encounter him on the street. In May of 1886, the newspapers reported that brothers Roderick and Robert had a fight right on Peachtree Street. Their relationship had been on the outs ever since fighting on opposite sides of the prohibition issue. And I talked about this in the prohibition episode, um, which was light years ago. I think I did that two years ago. But the banning of alcohol came to Atlanta much earlier than other cities, and it was heavily contested. Turns out Roderick was anti-prohibition and Robert was pro. But this fight had nothing to do with liquor. After tussling on the street, Robert actually cut Roderick in the back with a knife. They were both arrested, and when police asked what happened, Robert explained that his brother was paying attention to a woman of questionable character, which Roderick denies. Now keep this story in mind when I tell you what happens just the following year. In 1887, Roderick Badger's office was at 37 Peachtree Street, and pistol shots were heard near the building. Minutes before, his son Ralph, who was 21 at the time, and Joshua, who was 19, were at their father's office. In walks Rachel Fleming, described in the papers as, quote, a good-looking mulatto girl. Light skin gives little evidence of Negro blood in her veins, end quote. She confronts Roderick's two sons, and they get in a physical altercation. Rufus Cooper, who operates a tailor shop in the same building, he hears the yelling, he runs in, and he breaks the whole thing up. And so he grabs Josh, he puts him in the tailor shop, shuts the door, and goes back to Badger's office to, you know, understand what's happening. So Josh knows Cooper. And he's been in that tailor shop since he was a young boy, which means he knows where the gun is hiding. He grabs it. He runs back in his dad's office, shooting as he comes up the stairs. Thankfully, the bullet hits the doorframe, but he resumes shooting once he's inside the operating room. Dr. Badger is now standing in the doorway, um, but this is like something out of a movie. But there's a transom window over the door. So those little old-fashioned windows over the door. Josh stands on a chair and starts shooting through the transom window, just blindly trying to hit Rachel. Miraculously, no one was injured, but Rachel did faint from all the chaos. So you're probably wondering, 
Who the heck is Rachel? And why are these two men trying to kill her? It all started several years prior, when Bishop Henry McNeil Turner had been educating the young Rachel, but had reached a stopping point, where there's not much else he could do. So he asked his friend, Dr. Badger, to help her by letting her live with him and his family so she could attend school. Mrs. Badger gladly takes her in, gives her shelter, food, and clothes, and I'm sure you guys can guess where this is going. A short while later, Badger's mother-in-law caught Rachel Fleming and Roderick in an uncompromising position. Fleming was kicked out, but it's crazy when you hear Roderick's side of the story. And he says, you know, everyone in this house made it so unpleasant for her, she just had to leave. So wait for it. He sells her a house that he owns on Boulevard, and then he hires her to do the washing for his dental practice. And so the particular day of the shooting, she was just delivering some clean towels. And it gets better. Roderick tells the press, quote, I go out to see her every evening to see how she's getting along, but I am always home by eight o'clock, end quote. I laughed for five straight minutes. The patriarchy of the Victorian era knew no color boundaries. Everyone involved in this melee was arrested and charged with disorderly conduct and put in jail. The two Badger sons are released after posting $25 collateral or bail, and they would go in front of a judge. And there, they swear out a warrant against their dad and Rachel, charging them with fornication and adultery. Meanwhile, while they were all in jail, Roderick posted bail only for himself and Rachel. And Mrs. Badger is appalled that he would not get his own sons out of jail. In 1888, just a year after that drama, two young men insulted Roderick's daughter in downtown Atlanta. Again, crazy Victorians here, and Roderick was not going to stand for it. She tells her father they insulted her. He finds the young men and unleashes fury with his umbrella, which broke in the process. Sadly, just two years later, Roderick died after a months-long battle with stomach cancer. His funeral was at home at 46 East Harris Street, and his body was buried in Oakland Cemetery. His brother Robert is listed as being in and out of jail and, quote, so insane, end quote, that even the Negro lunatic asylum in Milledgeville would not admit him after he escaped twice. Roderick Jr. served as a caretaker in the governor's mansion. His son Ralph became a dentist in Nashville, but died young at the age of 30. Um, One of his sons, Josh, served in the Spanish-American War. And one of the twins, Jane, went on to marry William Harris from Athens, Georgia, and she named her son Roderick who was born in 1898. So that Roderick, Dr. Badger's grandson, would go on to be the first black man since Reconstruction to run in a municipal primary in Atlanta. In 1953, he was just a car salesman. But then along with A.T. Walden and Dr. Amos, the trio won a court case to even have the right to qualify for the city executive committee re-election. So there you have it, the story of Dr. Roderick Badger. Again, you can visit him at Oakland, um, and they often feature him, especially on the tours that they have there. Thank you guys for listening. Remember to leave a rating or a review if you're enjoying the podcast. I hope everyone has a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week.